Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now here's Pastor Jeff. Welcome to this episode of the Midweek Bible Study Podcast, and hey, thanks for tuning in. A few years ago, I was helping to lead a tour group to biblical sites in the Mediterranean on what is commonly called a Footsteps of Paul tour. This includes places where the Apostle Paul ministered as a missionary and a church planner, places like the island of Crete and Corinth and Athens and Ephesus, among others. After we had toured the remarkable ruins at Ephesus, we were returning to our ship, which was ported in southern Turkey. As we were walking through the port area, there were several shopping stalls. They were selling typical items like hats and handbags and sunglasses. And as I was walking by one of those stalls, I noticed a large, bright sign that read, Genuine Fake Watches. (laughs) And below that, there were different brands listed in bright lights like Breitling, Rolex, and Omega. The wording on that sign really caught my attention, so I took a picture of it while wondering what they meant by genuine fake. It's one of those contradictory terms like original copy or true fiction. I've met some genuinely fake people, but this was something different. According to a definition website, the term genuine fake describes the imitation of a valuable object that is so good that for all intents and purposes, it's identical. Today, the most counterfeited items in the world are shoes, especially Nike, along with clothes, leather goods, electronics, watches, perfumes, etc. And the country that produces the most counterfeit and fake items? You guessed it, that would be China. The term made in China is alive and active. The selling of so-called genuine fake items like Nike shoes and Rolex watches is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, people are buying these items thinking that they're purchasing the real deal only to be ripped off. On the other hand, and I'm sure in many more cases, there's a large demand for these counterfeit items, especially well-made ones, because, well, they cost a lot less money than the genuine products. A new Rolex watch will cost you many thousands of dollars, whereas a well-made fake Rolex might only be a few hundred dollars. So then, a lot of people are in the market for counterfeit Nike shoes, Rolex watches and Louis Vuitton handbags, all of which look real but cost much less. When I was in Istanbul, a small group of us were touring around for the day with a local tour guide, and she took us to a large backroom area of a local shop, and it was filled with shelves and shelves of knockoff items of name-brand products. The sunglasses I bought said Roy-Ban instead of Ray-Ban, but I did get a great deal on them. Just kidding. Counterfeit products can also be quite dangerous, such as fake car parts that suddenly fail or fake electronics that catch fire or explode. Perhaps the most dangerous counterfeit items are medications. People in desperate need of high-cost medications are seeking out alternative options, and they can end up with phony meds. One health report suggested that over one-third of phony medications have no active ingredient. 
Imagine that scenario for the person who is taking certain life-saving drugs. Other phony meds actually make the patient sick and can kill them. The singer Prince, who passed away at the age of 57, died from ingesting counterfeit Vicodin pain medications that that contained fentanyl. Counterfeits are nothing new and have been around for centuries. In Roman times, fine pottery was very popular, but it was thin and fragile, so oftentimes it came out of the firing ovens with hairline cracks. Crooked and deceitful dealers would fill those cracks with wax and then simply paint or glaze over them. And in ordinary light, you couldn't tell the difference. However, if those pottery pieces were held up to the sunlight, the cracks would be exposed as the wax-filled lines would appear darker. Honest dealers selling fine pottery would hang signs in their shops or stamp their pottery with the Latin words sincere, meaning without wax. Our English words sincere and sincerity are derived from that Latin root. Well, as we return to our series in the Epistles of John, a series we're calling Authentic Christianity, we're in 1 John chapter 3. The primary subject that John is addressing here in verses 4 to 10 is that of sin. In this discussion, John addresses the sins of genuine believers in contrast to the sins of the unsaved, including fake or counterfeit believers. So we ask, is there a difference in their sins? The answer is yes, and we'll explore that subject as we examine these verses together. So let's get started now by reading our first three verses as we pick up in verse 4 of 1 John chapter 3. And John writes, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Therefore, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. The title of this message is Setting the Record Straight on Sin. And I've chosen that title because there is some confusion on the subject of sin, especially when it comes to the sins of a Christian. For example, is this passage saying that a believer should never sin? Kind of sounds like it does. And are the sins of the lost and the saved the same? Can someone claim to be a Christian and live however they choose without regard to Scripture? And is such a person even genuinely saved? It is helpful for us to remember the backdrop to these late first century letters written by John. We've talked about the dangerous heresy which was gaining ground at that time called Gnosticism. One of the false teachings associated with Gnosticism was that the flesh and the spirit were separate, therefore a person could live and behave however they desired, and allegedly it had no effect upon them spiritually or eternally. As we discussed, dangerous counterfeit medications can kill people, and dangerous counterfeit religions and false teachers also pose a deadly spiritual threat. Today in the 21st century, the word sin is being deleted from our cultural vocabulary. It's being replaced with words like mistake, weakness, addiction, sickness, or a lapse in judgment. Instead of saying, I sinned, people will say, well, I misspoke or I misstepped. One well-known personality made a very harsh and hurtful statement, and then his public apology consisted of something like, if I said anything that upset anyone, then I regret it. Wow, that really smoothed things over. 
It gets even worse when people adamantly refuse to accept any responsibility for their sinful actions or words, and instead they'll argue that it wasn't their fault. That takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent and neither one of them took responsibility for themselves. As someone wisely noted, the trouble in the garden was not the apple on the tree, it was the pear on the ground. Let me take a moment to state the obvious. Everyone in the world today is a sinner, either a saved sinner or a lost sinner. But beyond that, there is another important distinction. John begins here in verse 4 and says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, a very important word, a key word that opens up this passage that John uses here is the word commits. The Greek verb that John uses describes a person not just committing a sin, but someone who is continuously, habitually practicing sin. This first sentence then is translated, whoever practices sin also practices lawlessness. So the important difference and distinction between the saved sinner and the unsaved sinner is that the unsaved sinner practices sin. It is their ongoing habitual lifestyle. And while the saved sinner also sins, it should not be their practice or habitual lifestyle. It was said of an old Methodist minister named George Morrison that he was a man who sought after righteousness on a daily basis. One day, a friend of his jokingly asked Dr. Morrison, have you gotten to the place that you no longer sin? Dr. Morrison's reply was, no, brother, I have not gotten to the place where I no longer sin, but I have gotten to the place where I can no longer sin and enjoy it. That's the big difference right there, and may that be said of all of us as believers. Notice how John uses the word lawlessness here in connection with the unsaved person who lives in continuous sin. Lawlessness is not only breaking God's law, it's rebellion against the laws of God. In other words, this person is rebelling against the very idea that what they're doing is wrong, and boy, don't we see that happening today. The sad reality today is that so many people don't understand the truth about sin or even what it means, let alone the eternal consequences of it. They never really understand why people get sick, why married couples fight, why children rebel, why tornadoes destroy, or why someone walks into a school and starts shooting children. We live in a broken and fallen world of sin, and the only hope is the life-changing gospel message of Jesus Christ. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. In contrast, while believers are not sinless, they do sin less. When a sinner repents and is born again by faith in Christ, they experience a changed heart. They have new desires to love and honor God and to love others. Pastor Warren Wiersbe makes a good point about the difference between the sins of the unsaved and the saved. He points out that when the unsaved sin, they're sinning against God's law. But as believers who are no longer under the law, when we sin, we're sinning against God's love. John continues in verse 5 and says, And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested, or came into the world, to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. In this passage, John describes three areas of victory that we have from Christ. And if you're taking notes, the first is victory over sin. Jesus came to this earth to take away our sins, and he accomplished that by dying on the cross as our sinless substitute. 
This is best summed up by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a great statement. So as believers, we're new creations in Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit living in us. But at the same time, we're still living in these sinful bodies of flesh. Therefore, while we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us, and while we have this new Christ nature, we still sin because of our fallen flesh. And so we read in Galatians 6, for example, the flesh fights against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another. Nevertheless, as Christians, we have the ability to walk in the spirit and to deny the lust of the flesh. Of course, we don't always succeed and we still sin, but we don't sin habitually and continuously. Paul wrote Romans 7 to describe this battle that we have as believers, oftentimes doing the very things that we don't want to do. But then Paul also wrote Romans 8.1, and that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 is the answer to the problem of Romans 7. Now we can properly understand what John was writing here in verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him, which is to say this, and please hear this. John is saying, whoever lives and remains in Christ does not practice habitual ongoing sin. But whoever does practice habitual ongoing sin has not truly receive Christ into their lives. That's what John is saying. And the victory we have over sin is because of Christ and the cross. Well, let's continue our reading now in verse seven, please, where John says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Notice John now shifts his tone back to that of a loving spiritual father. Little children, he says, and he's encouraging and warning his beloved spiritual children. Because of those Gnostics who were claiming that you could live as godlessly as you wanted to and that it didn't matter, John warned believers, don't be deceived, don't buy into that. Then John states that those who practice righteousness as their ongoing lifestyle are demonstrating and giving evidence that they have the righteousness of Christ in them. As Christians, and at the moment of our conversion, not only were our sins forgiven through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, listen, we have also received the righteousness of Christ into our lives. Jesus lived a perfect life, and that righteousness is placed into our lives at our conversion. At that moment, our sins are imputed to him or transferred to him, and his righteousness is imputed or transferred to us. If you put on a pair of sunglasses with red lenses, then everything you see will look reddish, right? If you happen to be wearing sunglasses with yellow lens, then everything you see will look yellow or yellowish and so on. When God looks at us as believers, he sees us through his son Jesus, and so he sees the righteousness of Christ in us. We can live righteously then because we have Christ's righteousness dwelling in us. We can live righteously, not perfectly, but righteously, and it's the evidence of our genuine faith. Well, this brings us to verse 8 and to the second area of victory that we have from Christ, which is victory over Satan. 
Victory over sin and now victory over Satan. Not only is the one who practices sin practicing lawlessness, listen, he who practices sin is of the devil. There are two kinds of people in the world today, children of God and children of the devil. We're either one or the other. That is to say, either God or the devil is our father. Jesus told the unsaved religious leaders in his day, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. A lot of people like those unsaved religious leaders today, a lot of people are religious and many even go to church, but that can't save you. It just means that you're religious and go to church. Only absolute faith, trust, and belief in Christ will make you a child of God and make God your father. As you well know, there are many people today who deny the reality of the devil, but the Apostle John certainly didn't. D.L. Moody rightly said, I believe in the devil's existence for two reasons. First, the Bible says so, and second, I've done business with him. Haven't we all? The devil is alive and busier than ever. His main purpose is to oppose God and to oppose God's people. John writes that the devil has sinned from the beginning, which stands in stark contrast to Jesus in verse 5, who has no sin. Now understand, Satan was originally created by God as one of the holy angels. In fact, a common question that people ask is, why would God create someone evil, an evil being like the devil? Well, he didn't create the evil demon who today is known as the devil. God created an untold number of angels, including an angel named Lucifer, and they were all created holy by God. But early on in the beginning of creation, Lucifer rebelled against God. He used the free will that God had given him, and Lucifer wanted to take the place of God. He wanted to be worshipped like God and adored. So God cast him out of heaven, and Lucifer, now known as Satan or the devil, convinced one-third of the angels to go with him in his rebellion. Today, those fallen angels are called demons, while the other two-thirds angels remain holy, committed to God's glory and honor. Another common related question has to do with the origin of evil and where it came from. And once again, the origin of evil and sin began with Lucifer's rebellion against God in heaven. The angels were all created again in that creation week, and shortly thereafter, that rebellion in heaven took place. We know that it took place quickly because by the time we get to Genesis 3 in our Bibles in the Garden of Eden, Satan is already a fallen angel who is tempting Eve and leading her and Adam into sin. It surprises some people to know that sin did not originate with Adam and Eve on earth. It began with Satan rebelling against God in heaven. It's popular today to see the devil as some fictional character that doesn't exist. The Bible tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, and the same is true of those who say there is no devil. Coming back to our second point here, Jesus Christ has given us victory over Satan. On the cross, Satan was defeated by the sacrificial death of Jesus. The devil is still in the world today, and he's still very active, as if we didn't know, right? He's the person and the power behind all the evil in the world today, as well as any and all false teaching. Satan will continue temporarily until the second coming of Jesus. Then he will be confined and eventually cast into the eternal lake of fire. Jesus then came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. The Greek word that John uses here for destroy means to put out of business or put out of operation. 
When I was a teenager, my dad was the lead investigator for the district attorney's office in the city where we were living. And around that time, there were several massage parlors popping up around town, which were actually fronts for prostitution. After weeks of planning and preparation, my dad left the house late one night, and he joined up with several teams of other investigators and police officers. And working together, they raided several of those businesses and shut them down. They were put out of operation. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He put the devil out of operation. Obviously, he still tempts and harasses and lies, but as believers, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to resist and defeat his wiles in our lives while we live righteously for the Lord. He is a defeated enemy because of Jesus, and his days are numbered. Well, now let's read a couple more verses for this message, picking up in verse 9. John writes, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother." The third area of victory, then, that we have from Jesus in this passage is victory over self. We've been born again. Victory over sin, victory over Satan, and victory over self. The first part of verse 9 simply says, whoever has been born of God or born again in genuine faith does not practice habitual sin. In the Greek, the word remains, where John says his seed remains, is describing our new birth in Christ as being permanent. We're permanent new creations. We also have the Holy Spirit living within us. So putting all of that together, John says that the person born of God does not practice habitual sin. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Then in verse 10, John offers a couple of straightforward examples about being genuinely born again and being new creations in Christ. The person whose life is one of continuous unrighteousness is demonstrating that they're not a child of God. And the person whose life is continuously unloving and unforgiving is doing the same. But let's be clear, born-again believers definitely do sin. In fact, the best of saints can commit the worst of sins. We might think of David's adultery with Bathsheba and then uh, having her husband killed in battle in a failed attempt to cover up his sin. We might think of Simon Peter denying that he even knew Jesus, taking an oath and denying him three times. However, those were genuine believers caught up in moments of deep sin. They repented and they received forgiveness Their lives were not defined by those moments. Their lives were defined by their years of ongoing faithfulness. In the same way, if you have fallen into serious sin in your life as a believer, you must repent and then accept God's forgiveness. And in the same way, you're not defined by your worst moments or even by your greatest moments for that matter. You are defined by what God has done for you and who you are in Jesus Christ. As one pastor well said, and I appreciate this counsel, don't let success go to your head and don't let failure go to your heart. We've talked about the devil a bit in this message, and one of his goals is to accuse and to shame and to condemn God's children when they sin. And oftentimes he's successful. 
We must never take our sins lightly and we must confess our sins, repent of them, and seek God's power for overcoming them. When we sin, we must do a sincere job of repenting, even relearning to rehate that sin. But at the same time, we must not refuse God's forgiveness or his mercy or his grace in cleansing our sins and restoring us just as he did with David and Peter. Ephesians 2.4 reminds us that we've been forgiven and saved by God who is rich in mercy. Did you know that in the Bible, the only thing God is described as being rich in is his mercy? I mean, he's most definitely holy and absolutely just, but in his mercy, he is rich and his mercy overflows. Sometimes believers struggle with the guilt of sinning after becoming a Christian. But let's remember that when Jesus died for our sins, all of our sins were in the future. Jesus died for them before we were even born, so all of our sins were future sins. In fact, Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, Scripture tells us. And so as we begin to wrap up our time, let me share three aspects of our deliverance from sin that I hope will encourage and enlighten us as believers. Number one, we have been delivered in the past from the penalty of sin. That was at the moment of our salvation. We'll never be judged for our sins because the Father already placed all of our sins upon Jesus at the cross. Number two, we are being delivered in the present from the power and practice of sin, and that's an ongoing process called sanctification. Remember what Paul said? It's not as if we've already arrived and reached the goal. We continue to press on towards faith, uh, in our faith, towards the prize of heaven. And thirdly, we will be delivered in the future once and for all and for all from the presence of sin when we get to heaven, and that's called glorification. So again, let me repeat that very quickly. We have been delivered, past tense, from the penalty of sin, that's salvation. We are being delivered, present tense, from the power and practice of sin, that's sanctification, and we will be delivered in the future once and for, and for all from the presence of sin when we get to heaven. The promise of heaven is that we will see Jesus, we will be with Jesus, and we will be like Jesus. No more sin, no more sorrow. Thank you, Lord. And until our next podcast, may the Lord bless you.